Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. I felt the warmth there. Um, my, like Nathan said, my name is Ryan McCarthy. It's always a privilege to get to spend time with you guys, and I understand that this is a unique Sunday in that this is the week before finals. Is that correct? How many of you are nervous or ready? Not ready? Raise your hand if you're not ready. Okay, good. So my challenge then is to somehow connect the goings-on of a guy who died 3,000 years ago, uh, an ancient king, five chapters worth, make that relevant for what's in front of you. You got finals, and then you get a break for about a month. And if you look at the, we're in Second, second Samuel chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. But there are a lot of details. There's a lot of things. It's like jumping into a drama in the middle of a movie, you know, or like in the middle of a soap opera, you have to kind of explain who's who, and there's so much there. And so I'm thinking, this is, this is a good task for me to try to connect these two things. And I'm just gonna tell you right off the bat, there is so much that can be said about these five chapters. I'm zooming, I'm gonna summarize a whole lot and just pull out one thing to cling on to and apply it to you guys. So I'm not gonna do justice to every single verse that's on here. I really could just read the passage and then, then be done because there's enough to preach. Last time I preached, I think I preached seven chapters. I don't know if you remember that if you're here, but I got five this time. But we're in 2 Samuel chapter one. And let me just give you a quick synopsis. If you were here last week, Ben spoke about the death of Saul. King Saul, he was Israel's king. He was legitimate on one hand in the sense that God had Saul, you know, uh, he picked Saul to be the king for this nation, but he was illegitimate because he, he lost, he, he, he took control and God gave the kingdom over to David, King David, and David spent 10 years running from Saul. So imagine, just for a second, if you were promised the ultimate dream job and things are going to be wonderful but you had to wait you've been on the run from being arrested for 10 years like since 2013 imagine you're, you've been on the run since 2013 for some of you i don't know what grade you'd be in fifth uh, whatever i mean they, there's a there's a range but that's a long time okay all of a sudden we're we're starting this where David is now, I mean, the guy who's been chasing you is dead, and now it's your turn. And so David is receiving, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it starts off with David receiving the news that his enemy, uh, Saul, is dead. And he gets the news from a guy who lies about what happened. He, this is an Amalekite, and he, he comes to David with the news that Saul's dead, and this contradicts the accounts that we get in the previous chapters, is that he says that, Saul, that he killed Saul, essentially, that he came across Saul in the battlefield, and he was bleeding out, but he was still alive, and, um, and he says that 
uh, Saul asked to kill him, ask him to kill you know, Saul, and um, he does so, he says, even though this is not what actually happens. Why do you think he might be telling David that he killed King Saul? You're reporting to the new king, I got rid of your enemy, right? With the hopes that maybe then you can bring me on to your, like, to your leadership and I can get a great sweet job or some great reward. But David does not respond the way he expects. Verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14 says, how is it, David says to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David had him killed right there on the spot. So that kind of backfired. He was hoping to get a great reward and instead he gets killed. And then in verse 17, it says, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the point being from this first chapter is that David is not a guy who rejoiced, celebrated, or supported the death of his enemies. He mourned over the death of his enemies. This is unique. This is not your typical king. Rather, he loved his enemies. And then after 10 years, David is officially anointed king in chapter 2, verse 4. This is what it says. And the men of Judah uh, came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And it looks like the coast is clear for David to assume the throne, to sit down and to take his job. But look at verses 8 and 9. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim, I don't know. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So there's a, there's a little plot twist here. It's, not, it's not, not terribly hard to imagine what would happen when a nation has two kings. Imagine if it happened in America. You know, you get a president who's inaugurated and, and a few other states, though, inaugurate a different president. What, what would you call that? A civil war, Right? This is, this is a problem here because you have two different kings and two, two different states, different regions, and it's going to play out as it's going to become a war. So verse 12 through 32, the rest of chapter 2, we get this account of how this war starts to unfold. It starts with a battle that's in the form of champion warfare. Now, what champion warfare is is what you saw with um, uh, Goliath and David where instead of both armies just going at it with all-out bloodshed, you select one, two, three, a small handful of, of representative, representative champions, and they go out and they do the fighting to represent the army. It's a pretty smart way to do it, I suppose. And you have champion warfare taking place in the rest of chapter 2, and on one side you've got 12 men under the command of Abner. That's on Saul's side. That's Ishpozheth. Ishposheth's side. That's hard to say. He, they should have thought about how his name sounded. Um, so 12 men represented Saul's uh, uh, son, and then uh, 12 men under the command of Joab represented David. And what happens is they all come at each other, uh, like actually verse 16, it says, and each, and each one caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so they fell down together. So this doesn't go so well because all 12 against 12, they all kill each other at the same time, which has been kind of fun to see. And it sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, and the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Basically, sorry, I've got to trim my beard apparently. Um, so... 
this thing has to escalate, and it turns into a war, and David's men beat Abner. Joab's men beat Abner. Like David wins on that. Verse 18, one of Joab's brothers, Asahel, starts chasing Abner. I hope you're following all these names. I'm doing my best. But they start going after the commander of Saul's army, and he can't outrun him, and, Saul, and, and, and Abner says in verse 22, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Then Abner struck him in the stomach and the butt of his spear uh, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell there and he died where he was. So everything's kind of like turning into a, um, I should have thought of the term because a bad word's coming to my mind. Um, it's, it's turning very messy, very bloody. And when it's all said and done, verse 30, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. And on Saul or Ishbosheth's side, the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. So David's side, they lose 20 men versus 360. This is the way it's going to continue to play out. Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And it took seven years. Okay, so 10 years on the run, you now get the job, but it's civil war for seven years. This is a long time to wait. Abner, the real power behind Ishbosheth, defects and tries to join David. And he knows that Ishbosheth is losing. So look at verses 17 and 18 on chapter 3. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. I'm, I, I'm reading this for a, a reason. Abner knows that God has appointed David as the king, and yet he, up to this point, has been serving Ishbosheth. So he knows better, but he's still doing it. Joab catches winds, though, that this guy who killed his brother is trying to join David's team, and he goes out and he murders Abner. So everybody is dying, it seems like, that's being introduced. David hears that his commander killed the commander on the other side, and, and basically, David, again, does not rejoice over his enemies dying. He mourns, he disassociates himself with the whole thing, and now you've got Ishbosheth and David, both claiming to be kings, but Ishbosheth is getting really, really weak. In chapter 4, um, two of Ishbosheth's guys, like uh, commanders, go and stab Ishbosheth in the stomach while he's asleep. They cut off his head. This is very violent. I gotta just say say something really quickly. Um, my wife texted me right before coming. She goes, "Hey, do you want me to come and bring the kids?" And I've got like a nine-year-old daughter, a ten and fourteen-year-old. My kid, my boys can handle this, but my daughter, she's gonna have nightmares if she sits in. So they cut, they they stab Ishbosheth in the stomach, cut off his head, bring his head to David, and they're thinking, "Why do you think they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David?" Same reason the other guys did, right? They were hoping, hey, man, thanks for serving me, killing my enemies. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, David says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. 
which was the reward I gave for his news. How much more then, uh, when wicked men have killed a righteous man, he's calling his enemy a righteous man, killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not, not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And he kills the two assassins who took out his, his enemy. Chapter 5, finally, David takes the throne. He's anointed. After 17 years, David is finally actually king. Okay, I did my best, all right? What do we learn from all that? We, I, there are a lot of things that I could dive into, but I want to pull out one main point from all of this. We learn from these chapters that no kingdom can tolerate two kings. No kingdom can tolerate two kings. Uh, you've got two who have, on, in a sense, they've effectively laid claim to the throne and what results is this ugly civil war and a lot of bloodshed. But you have two very different kings laying claim to the throne. So on one hand, you got the true king, David. And let's see if all this appears at once. Yeah, good. So David, he's being the true king. He's a king who, he's, but I, I don't want to portray him as perfect up here, but as far as this contrast goes, I think this is fair. David submits his own agenda to the word and the will of God. I mean, I didn't read chapter 2, verse 1, but David prays about almost every decision he makes. He asks God, should I go up to Judah? Should I go up to uh, do this? And, and God will give him yes and no answers. He is submitting himself to God's agenda. However, Ishbosheth and Abner, kind of as a team, they reject God's word and will, and they replace it with their own agenda. Ishbosheth knew that God had anointed David, and yet he's serving the wrong guy, and he knows it. David waits patiently for what is his. I mean, after 17 years, wouldn't you say, it's about time. God, give me what you've told me you were going to give me. And yet, um, he is waiting patiently for what has been given to him, while Ishbosheth doesn't wait at all. There's no waiting. There's just taking. He's claiming what is not his. David seeks unity and peace under God's reign. Again, I could have spent a lot of time talking about his, stra his strategic moves to unify a divided nation, and yet uh, Ishbosheth and Abner, they, they don't care how they're dividing things. They're just, uh, they're rebelling, promoting disunity. It's causing confusion and death, while David is remaining gracious and loving actually toward his enemies. David is obedient, righteous, and compassionate, while Ishbosheth asserts his pretend authority out of pride and need. And the result of these two kings laying claim to the same kingdom is a state of war, chaos, and death in Israel. So that's, that's what we learn just from like a flyby of, the, of these chapters. But I would say what is true for a nation can also be true in our hearts, right? I, there's, you could read over the history of Israel and in the Old Testament, and if you, if you have this lens, that this is sort of a nationalistic picture of us as the church or of sometimes of us as an individual. I relate a lot to the, to the big overarching story of, of the way Israel grows, and this is one of those areas where Israel was in a civil war, and it was disastrous, but they were really only supposed to have one true king. And in the same way, we are supposed to have one true king. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is 
the true king that we're supposed to serve. For example, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So um, he is the king. And there's going to be a day where every single person acknowledges, recognizes, and acknowledges that. But in the meantime, there's a temptation to serve more than one king. Uh, The first commandment, uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. From the outset, God wants us to serve him and him alone. And also, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he's talking here about God and money. He says God and mammon. But the point being, you can't serve two masters. But just like Israel, uh, we are in that kind of a same state. We didn't start off serving the right king. I want to be clear about that too. None of us were born serving and worshiping Jesus. We, st- we were born, and just like Israel, they, they started off, they were serving Saul, and the wrong king. We find ourselves at some point serving Saul or Ishbosheth when we did before we knew Christ. But something happens to us that I'm speaking explicitly to those of you who identify as Christians here. For us, we are in the same state that, that we just covered. We're experiencing two different kings. For example, Galatians 5.17. This is going to be a key verse that I want to really camp out on. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you doing the things that you want, keep you from doing the things that you want to do. If, if you are a Christian, this makes sense to you. That there's a, a two different kings fighting for your allegiance but i will say this everybody is in a war whether you're a a believer or not you're experiencing some type of war it's just that there are two different types of wars i want to be clear that for example 1898 america was in a war anybody any history buffs know which war i'm talking about that's right the spanish-american war (laughs) yeah i had to look up that date so that war only lasted a year. It took place in the Caribbean and off the, you know, the coast of the uh, Atlantic. And, <clears throat> and it, it was a war against another country, Spain. If you lived in the States during that time, you probably wouldn't have known, unless you're reading the news, that there's a war going on. 30 years prior, uh, 1861 to 1865, there was another war. Anybody want to tell me? The Civil War, that's correct. It was, a, it, was a, it was a war, and there's no escaping that. If you lived in the States, you would have known there's a war going on because it was now a civil war. The, the, the enemy was living here, and so that battle is much harder to avoid. In the same way, everyone is in a war. Some people are in a war that resembles a conflict a lot more like the Spanish-American War, a national war, a war against somebody that is outside of you And there can be relative peace inside because what you're basically saying is, God, I want to rule me. I don't want you ruling my life. And 
I'm going to do things my way. Now, uh, Ephesians 2, 3, Roman, uh, Romans 9, 22, there's a lot of verses that talk about that we are objects of wrath, that we are in enmity with God. Romans 8, 7, and 8, I have that one up here. Uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you don't know Christ, this is what Paul is asserting, what a lot of scripture is saying, is that you are a united front trying to keep God outside. You're not, you've not yet submitted yourself, bowed your knee to the true king, and you might not be experiencing overt hostility toward God, but you want you want control over your own life. But the moment you said yes to Jesus, this war didn't go away, it came inside. The Spirit, Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence in your heart, but it does not yet finish off Ishposheth. It doesn't yet finish off your flesh. Your flesh and your spirit are at war with each other, and it says in Galatians 5.17, so that you cannot do what you want. Uh, if, if the Holy Spirit wants you and you want to follow Jesus, but you notice that you can't follow God the way you want. Have you noticed that? And if you're a Christian, you can't fully enjoy sin the way you want to. There's this conflict that kind of has you in this no man's land. It's awkward. It's, it, there's, there's a tension inside. And that's the experience of the Christian. So do you ever try to like, for example, do you ever try to like read your Bible and you want to spend a really good time with, with God, and, and you, so you get everything set up. You try to read your Bible, and you, you just can't concentrate. Like, you don't struggle with ADD and the other top topics. You, know, you pick up Harry Potter, and you read just fine. But when you try to read your Bible, it's like you find yourself just going all over the world with your, with your mind. Anybody? Okay, I see. It's just really bright up here. I can't see very well. The, um, the dynamic of desiring to, to follow God, but not a, being able, there's a reason, because our flesh is screaming against it, kicking against efforts to follow God. There's a traitor living inside us. Um, and the reason is because the, the flesh. We, we have this traitor, the civil war that's going on, and I'll just say it this way. Genuine Christians are going to experience an inward struggle. If you find your walk with Christ and your attempts to be obedient and extremely challenging, I want you to be encouraged by that. That's a sign that there's actually, a, that war that's going on inside is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working, but your flesh is working too. Um, for me, for example, I remember I became a Christian my freshman year, at TCU. I was an atheist beforehand, and I was, I mean, I was just doing drugs, all this stuff. I mean, the, the fact is, I didn't really have, I had a problem with what, I wouldn't have called it my sin. I didn't believe in sin, but I had a problem with things that I was doing only in the way that they could get me in trouble. That's it. I was only worried about the way things I was doing might backfire. I didn't want to get addicted to drugs, uh, I was ashamed of some of the things I was doing because it was kind of embarrassing, I suppose. But largely, I was really okay with things. And then I met Jesus, and all of a sudden, some things just fell away naturally, but there's a lot of things that didn't just fall away. I, I, I loved girls. Praise God, I wasn't great at getting them. But, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I loved girls, and I, all of a sudden, I had this tension. When it just came to lust, for example, it's like I didn't all of a sudden find girls to be unattractive. 
I still wanted to indulge my lust, but I had this now love-hate relationship with the things that I used to just simply love. And that's the way it is. There's a love-hate relationship that we have with our, with our sin. And it's something that is a sign of, of the Holy Spirit fighting against the flesh, this civil war that we live in. So according to Galatians 5.17, the presence of a real love for God comes alongside a love-hate relationship with sin. And so uh, Paul really acknowledges what this sounds like in Romans chapter 7. Uh, there's a lot of verses. This is a long section. I just put up two of the verses. Verse 15, he says, For I don't understand my own actions, for I do what I want, for I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. Verse 16 says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This battle of kingdoms is at work. So let's just look in the remaining time that we have at what the false king wants for us, our flesh. I'm using terms like flesh, false king, there's the enemy. There's, there's, a, there's a lot I could go into. I'm using these terms interchangeably, so I hope you're okay with that. But when the false king is in charge, in our private lives, for example, he's promoting self-centeredness. This false king wants you to look out for yourself. Take care of your own needs. Do it your way. He wants to promote self-reliance. You've got the resources and the tools that you need to take care of your needs. And what that looks like, ultimately, is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Yeah, that's um, is not praying. Because why would you pray to the true king? Because he might take away your agenda. He might replace your agenda with his. So if you're relying on your own resources and your own self-centeredness, you're not going to want to pray. Um, it's going it, to, this false king promotes self-indulgence. The only way for you to be happy and satisfied is to do what you need to do to feel good. Whether that takes the form of hitting the snooze button 18 times or indulging your lust, or you know, other escapist activities. It's always pleasure now at the cost of a high interest rate that you have to pay later. There's a phrase that says, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. I think that's always true. It always keeps you and costs you and you know, it won't let you go. In our, in our public lives, this false king wants to make you selfishly ambitious and proud. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. But we're supposed to be wired to care more about other people than ourselves. But no, it's, it's about me. And you exist because I'm the main character in my little play, and you're all characters in my play, and it's all revolving around me. Well, that smells... You know, that, that, that kind of posture is visible to other people, and it makes you unattractive when, when you're in that mindset. But he wants to make you self-promoting and proud and selfishly ambitious. He wants to make you self-trusting. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. We're not even supposed to. We're supposed to put all of our weight in trusting God. By contrast, we're not even supposed to lean on our own understanding. We're supposed to trust Him and yet we think, but I really know best. 
and we do things our way. We, we do what seems best in our own eyes. You heard the term situational ethics or what, uh, that you, you, this situation, I should do this because this is what seems best. And uh, well, that's where you break the rules and makes you a self-trusting person. He wants to make you self-protecting. There's so much more that can be said about all this, but uh, I want to be in control of what you know about me or what you think. I, I, I'm not going to let you in. And we, we become self-protective and hypocritical. In a word, to summarize all this, the false king wants to make you self-destructive. I think that's a fair way to put it. He wants to make you self-destructive. The, there's a verse, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, I heard an illustration that's going to gross you out. That's another reason I didn't want my, my daughter to be here. So prepare yourselves. Um, have you guys heard about how Eskimos catch wolves? I don't know if this is true, but if it if it's not, it's a brilliant illustration. They will take a knife and di dip it in blood and freeze it. And they'll dip it in blood again and freeze it until there's a block of bloody ice around the blade. And they stick the blade, blade up in the, uh, they stick the knife blade up in the snow. Then they leave, they leave it alone. And the, a wolf is out there with a God-given desire for blood. So it goes up, it smells the knife, it, sm it smells that blood and it begins to lick the block of bloody ice. Now, it initially gets what its God-given desire is. It, it's been, it has a desire for blood by God's design. But as it's getting that blood, its tongue goes numb because it's licking ice. And pretty soon, it licks the blade. And then that wolf doesn't know that it's tasting its own blood, and it bleeds out and dies right there by the blade. Pretty brilliant, right? Scary as anything. Anybody going to sleep tonight? <laughs> Um, is that not what the enemy does to us with our sin? You want, you want intimacy. You want to feel loved. You want to feel connected. And God says there's a legitimate way to get that. And I'm going to give it to you, but it takes trust in me and being patient. But then the enemy says, yeah, but you could also do this. You can go outside and get that. And you do get an initial taste of feeling loved a sense of intimacy and connection, but it's not in the safety of what God provided. And then all of a sudden, you find that, like, you have less and less to give, and you have less and less of an ability to receive, so you need more and more, and pretty soon, you're bleeding out, and you don't even know it. And that applies to anything. If you want to feel important, yeah, you can find your importance in the way people respond to you. You can find your importance in the way you're getting offered job promotions or your grades, but it never pays out and it leaves you bleeding out as you say no to the true king and embrace the false king's agenda. And the thing that's amazing is he has no authority. The false king, who is, by the way, the false king we're talking about is infinitely more conniving, bloodthirsty, and brilliant and powerful than Ishbosheth was. His agenda, though, is it's what's amazing. He has absolutely no authority. If you're in Christ, he has absolutely no authority. And all he can do is lie. He has two main lies that he gives all of us. And I would say everything that we hear from the enemy can be divided into these two categories, accusation and temptation. Temptation and accusation. 
do this, it'll be fine. You know what? This is the way to, this is the way you can experience some joy. And then God will forgive you. And so you go and do it. And then on the back end, there's accusation. How can you love God if you did that? How could he love you? He, everything falls into temptation and accusation, yet there's absolutely no truth or authority to those words. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You, you actually have the ability to say, nope, I am actually going to submit to the true king, and I'm going to wrestle to submit to him. So this is the dilemma we find ourselves in. And, you know, Romans six fourteen by the way, says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You've died to this false king. It's like a Wi-Fi connection. You can just turn off the Wi-Fi and not receive, not be tuned into him anymore. Well, what is this, what does it look like when the true king is, is ruling? Well, I have a, I think I have these all up here. Jesus, our true king, he wants to free you. I would say take a picture of that screen. That's a lot to write. He wants to free you. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't submit anymore to a yoke of slavery. He wants to connect you to himself and make you flourish in him. He wants to make you loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, you know, faithful, self-controlled. He wants to make you you, the way God made you. Uh, I'll just explain that briefly. We're described as the salt and the light of the earth, and Jesus is the salt and the light as well. That salt and light are both things that, if you put salt on steak, it doesn't make the steak taste more like salt. It makes the steak taste more like steak, right? If you point light at something, it doesn't make the thing look like light. It makes the thing look more like itself. Coming to Jesus doesn't make everybody look like clone Christians, no, coming to Jesus and submitting to him, he makes you more you. Does that make sense? I was afraid when I first became a Christian that I would become um, like, a, like a, some of the cheesy Christian characters that I, I think I knew and there were some that were portrayed in media at the time. And I was afraid of like following Jesus because I was afraid I'd lose my sense of humor, I'd lose whatever it was that I was proud of. And I actually found that he freed me to become more me. And he wants to make you, you. He made you unique, and he's not squelching that, hiding it under a stereotype. Um, another thing, he wants to glorify you. He wants to lift you up. He wants to exalt you. And uh, if we had any idea what the agenda of this true king really looked like, I don't think there would be a battle. We would just follow him. I, um, I heard a story in, in closing uh, about an old Cherokee uh, who told his grandson a story. And this is, this is actually a poster we bought our son that we're going to give to him at Christmas. He said, my son, there is a phone that needs to be muted. Just kidding. He said, my son, there's a battle between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It's anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the grandson thought about it for a minute. He said, he asked, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. Who are you feeding? Who's your king? If you, if, if you declare that Jesus is your king, that's good, you, 
you, I have to keep declaring that. I have to remind myself. But who are you feeding? Uh, the, the application's pretty simple here, but it's, it's just different for all, for all of us. One, we, we need to starve the false king. Uh, those two verses are calls to put to death our flesh. Uh, we, we need to kill and do battle against sin in our hearts. And for some of us, we know where we're tempted ahead of time. I, I always felt this dilemma. When I was in college and Christmas break was coming up, I knew I was going to be going home and there would be new opportunities to sin. I knew what those were for me. I had new temptations. I had temptations that were available to me that I had done things to make not available while I was here. And if I didn't decide before I left for Christmas break what I was going to do, I was deciding I'm going to go ahead and just let myself handle it when I get there. I was deciding I'm going to follow my flesh. I would have to recruit trusted friends before I left to say, hey, will you check on me while I'm in Kansas City? That's where I was from. Would you check on me because I'm, I'm going to be tempted to do this or call this girl or whatever it might be? And um, you have to actively, strategically starve, do your best to starve the false king, and then do what you can to feed the true king. I think we all know that there are certain things we do that cause our hearts to come alive when we're following Jesus. I have to actively lean in in the way I read my word and the way I pray. And so I'm not going to spend the time trying to figure out what that application would look like, look like for everyone. But I, I, would, I would say this, for those of you who are resonating with this sense that this is a struggle, this is a battle, I really want to follow Jesus, but I, I don't want to at the same time. I want to do my thing. I remember that season where I was trying to quit smoking pot. I was, I was convicted that I, need to sm- I, I shouldn't be smoking pot, all right? This is three months ago. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sophomore year of college. Um, <laughs> I, I knew I was supposed to pray, God, help me to quit, but I didn't want to quit. I enjoyed it. So my prayer was, Lord, give me the desire to want to quit. Some of us need to just pray that, God, give me a desire to want you more. I know you're good, but I also know this is good, and I don't really know if I really want you, but I know I'm supposed to want you. So, God, give me the desire to want you more. That's an honoring prayer. And if you even want to pray that prayer, it's a sign that the spirit and the flesh are taking up residence and fighting inside you. If you just think, I, just shut up, <laughs> just move on, I don't really care, okay, that's a sign that you're doing just fine on your own, but you're not submitting to the, to the true king. And in which case, I'm saying, I hope it doesn't go well for you. God, God's judgment is to give us what we want apart from him, meaning if he loves you, he's interrupting your agenda for yourself and coming into your life and shaking things up. We can either fight against that or we can fight to submit to it, but either way, it's going to be a fight. So let me pray for us. Let me pray that God actually makes that a successful fight to follow him. Father, thank you so much for what you've done to um, interrupt our agendas, that you loved us too much to let us have what we want apart from you, to give us what we're looking for apart from you. And uh, Lord, I thank you that you entered into that fight. You actually fought it perfectly and then died in our place so that the final score, the victory, is it belongs to you and it belongs to those of us who, who trust in you. But Father, I just pray that we could start experiencing the joy and the peace of submitting to you 
and actually the joy and peace that comes in fighting to follow you. Give us the will to submit to, to you being our true king. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.